Okay, Daniel chapter 6. We uh, come now to the, amongst uh, many very well-known chapters, probably the best-known chapter in the book of Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den. And we come to it as we finished last week, chapter 5. And so there is this continuous flow. The structure is obviously very deliberate. Last time we saw with uh, Belshazzar's feast, we saw the fall of Babylon. And now as we come to chapter 6, we have the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire. And thus the first six chapters of Daniel pretty much take us through the entire span of the period of Daniel's life and his time in Babylon. But we're only halfway through the book. So when we come to chapter 7, we're going to be going back in time a little bit, and Daniel's going to have specific details to fill in for us. But the historical overlay of the book is coming to an end with this chapter. We ended last time with the last couple of verses in chapter 5. That night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And so Belshazzar, who had taken the cups of the Jewish temple and used it for a drunken orgy and this big feast that they had had the hand appear and the writing on the wall, and there was Daniel once again called upon to interpret what others couldn't interpret and to deliver a message that nobody else was prepared to deliver, which was a message that the kingdom was coming to an end. He said the same thing in principle at the very, very beginning of his time in Babylon, in chapter 2. He said this kingdom is going to come to an end. You're the head of gold, but there's going to be a chest of silver that's going to follow. Now we've come to the time in history where the golden empire is coming to an end and the one of silver is going to begin. Now, as we come into chapter 6, there's a few things of detail but, that I want to just touch on briefly, partly because, you know, it's part of the context of the passage, and partly because I think, I, I forget sometimes, just that for those of you who only come for morning services, you're only going to get so much teaching and there's elements that you may have missed out. But <clears throat> we have here at the end of chapter 5, the fall of Babylon. And the Babylonian Empire, which we've talked about much in in the last few chapters, this great empire, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he conquers uh, Jerusalem, one of many, many nations that have been conquered, and there's this astonishing power that God seems to have given to Nebuchadnezzar, that he could pretty much take any nation that he wanted. And, And Babylon was perhaps the greatest empire the world had seen up until that day. Now, all of that said... We need to understand the significance of Babylon in the Bible has only just begun. Babylon was raised up and Babylon has now fallen. But this is a blip in Babylon's history. When we look at the scriptures concerning Babylon, there are... So many passages talking about Babylon and and particular the fall of Babylon. When we went through the book of Isaiah in the evening services a few years ago, in Isaiah 13, um, Isaiah begins his oracles against various nations. This nation has done this and I'm going to judge them. This nation has done that and I'm going to judge them. And he begins that list with Babylon. Now at the time that Isaiah wrote that, that must have seemed very strange. Why are you telling us about Babylon? They're just that little nation over there. They're they're no big deal. We've got the Assyrians, that that superpower, right on our doorstep. And and, and we want to hear what you've got to say about the Assyrians. Why are you talking about the the Babylonians? That's of no interest to us. But Isaiah's 
judgment upon the nation begins with Babylon in chapter 13. And he goes through these various other nations, and then he comes back to Babylon in chapter 21. And the reason is, is because Isaiah is saying in this judgment of the nations, I, or God rather is saying through Isaiah, I, Yahweh, am not just God of Israel, I am God over the whole world. I am God over all nations. And the greatest of nations that will be the greatest of threats at the very end, I will bring down and establish my kingdom. So all of the others are going to be small fry in comparison. So Babylon has risen and as Babylon has fallen, but the scriptures are abundantly clear that Babylon will, fall, will rise again and will fall again. And it will rise to be greater than even it was in Nebuchadnezzar's day. We have prophecies concerning Babylon throughout Scripture. I've mentioned Isaiah 13 and 21. There's two entire chapters devoted to the fall of Babylon in Jeremiah 50 and 51. And when you go through the book of Revelation, which I'm looking forward to doing one day uh, with you all, in chapter 18, right before the wedding feast of the Lamb, we have an entire chapter devoted to the fall of Babylon. Babylon is the last kingdom that has to fall and then we have the wedding feast of the Lamb. So Babylon is not here anymore. And that has led so much of the church to, to, to allegorize the way that, oh, Babylon is representative of this and that and what have you. Well, the church did exactly the same with Israel. There's countless prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Israel that hadn't been fulfilled by the time we get to 70 AD and Jerusalem is again destroyed. By the time we get to midway through the second century, Israel doesn't exist as a nation. And then another century, and another century, and another century, Israel doesn't exist as a nation. And the church over the centuries more and more allegorized away all the prophecies concerning Israel. And then in 1948, Israel became a nation again. As it had to, because God made promises that he is going to keep. Does Babylon exist today? No. It's kind of ruined somewhere in the Iraqi desert. Will it rise up again? Oh, absolutely it will. One day it will again be the greatest of all nations. It will be greater than ever before. And it will be the greatest threat to the Jewish people, to those who call on the name of Christ. And it will be the last nation to fall when Christ returns. So Babylon is very significant in Bible history. And God who took them down in Daniel 5 is the same God that will take them down at the end. The next thing to note as we come in here is that Darius the Mede receives the kingdom. He receives it means he's given it. Darius is not the king of the Medo-Persian Empire in the way that Nebuchadnezzar was the, the sovereign of the Babylonian Empire. Babylon was the capital of the Babylonian Empire, right? But now the Medo-Persians have taken over, and Babylon is just a province of the Medo-Persian Empire. And so there is a great Persian king called Cyrus. And we know that he's great because he's called Cyrus the Great. Just in case you didn't know, he tells you. Did you know that I'm great? I'm Cyrus the Great. That's... Uh, Modesty right there. Anyway, so Cyrus the Great is the king, and he gives Darius the responsibility of the province of Babylonia. And it's Darius who is the leader, therefore, that we see throughout this in chapter 6. But as we come into chapter 6, let's just be reminded of this main theme of Daniel that has come up again and again, which is that all Gentile kingdoms are destined to fall. And so... Though this one is now in power, and though this one thinks it's great because it's just conquered the Babylonians, and as we've seen in Daniel, thus believing it's conquered their gods and the gods of those that they've conquered previously, then in the same way, one day God will bring down this kingdom. Verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them was three presidents of whom Daniel was one. 
to whom these satraps should give account so that the king may suffer no loss. Right, first year of the kingdom. They've come in, they've taken everything over. Babylon used to be a capital, now it's a province. Darius, you're in charge of this. You've got to run this province. So for the first year or so, Darius is adjusting government and getting things in place. One of the things the Medo-Persians would do is they would predominantly use a whole bunch of the existing system and maybe just rearrange the pieces a bit to keep things flowing continually. And it would take some time to move the pieces around. Of course, the Babylonians had already established, um, had conquered many other nations in, in their kingdom, and so there's various people of different nations and kingdoms within Babylonia. So this is the structure that's gonna ha- they're going to have now as they line things out in the new, the new Babylonia, this province of the Medo-Persian Empire. You have Cyrus the Great, he's in charge of the empire. Now under him, there's Darius the Mede, and he is going to be in charge of this province. Darius the Mede has three presidents. These presidents are going to be the ones who are going to oversee 120 different satraps. We might think of them as governors or mayors, um, people who are going to have responsibility for various geographical regions and various responsibilities. But they will all be answerable to these three presidents. And the three presidents will deal with uh, Darius. And the reason for this is so that Darius will suffer no loss. It's for his benefit. If you are somebody who's in charge, you don't want to be dealing with 120 different people. Some of you are very, very gifted, and you can, you can, so to speak, figuratively speaking, you can juggle four or five balls in the air at once. Some of us are like laser focused, and if we're so, we have one ball and somebody throws in a second one, we drop them both. But we all have our limits, and, and Darius can't be overseeing absolutely everything. So he has these three guys who are, who are incredibly gifted, who are going to be able to oversee the entirety of the running of the kingdom, and they're accountable to Darius. So if Darius says, well, I don't like what's going, over, going on over there, there's only one of those three people he has to deal with, and he can now oversee the entire kingdom. It's for his benefit. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So what the next verse says is, so we've got our structure, Cyrus, Darius, the the presidents, and the the satraps, okay? Daniel is one of the three presidents. Daniel has so excelled himself, he has so accomplished, as has been shown from the time he was a teenager and being trained right at the beginning of the time that the Jews were in Babylon, right the way through. And Daniel is now in his 80s, and so he's only gotten better. And Darius can immediately tell, this guy knows how to run an empire. This guy knows what he's doing. So he is now planning on adjusting that structure so that there is now going to be Cyrus, Darius, Daniel, and then the other presidents. Whether he's going to then promote somebody up to be another one to fill the gap, I don't know. But, but Daniel will be above the, the other presidents. That is the plan. Verse 4, then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could not find, they could find no ground nor, uh, for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. There's quite a few things we need to say about this. Firstly, they sought to find a ground for complaint. They sought to find something that they could have a problem with. The presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint. Let me say this absolutely clearly. If you have a complaint against someone, that could be perfectly valid. You might have a complaint against me. That's perfectly valid. My wife probably has several as as she sits there right now. So so you're going to be in good company, all right? You can have complaints against all sorts of people. The reason to have a complaint is because, this might shock you, you have a complaint. The second, and I I want this to be really clear, the second you seek to find a complaint, 
you are in the wrong. Let me say that again. The second that you seek to find a complaint, you're in the wrong. You're the problem. So much conflict, so much interrelational conflict between husbands and wives, between friends, within churches, at work, out in the world. So much of that comes about because somebody has their nose put out of joint and they're looking to find a complaint. They're looking to find a justification. Look, if there's a complaint, there's a complaint and you deal with the complaint. But what you do not ever, 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 one more time, ever do is seek to find grounds for a complaint. Because the second that you do that, you have become the problem and you are the person in the wrong. There's no need to find a complaint if there is a complaint. Why, why then would, Dan, would Daniel's companions, probably not the best word, his, his peers here, the fellow presidents, the satraps working under him, if they've got an issue with Daniel, why can't they just say, well, here's the issue? And this is the reason why. I'm gonna, we're going to keep in these verses. We'll, come, we'll go further forwards in a minute. But, but listen when they complain. Um, they come later on when they make their complaint. Verse 13. When they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. The only reason, given anywhere in the text, for them to have an issue with Daniel being in charge of them, is he's a Jew. That's the only issue. Now, I'm going to talk about that specific thing in a minute, but let me say this, with regards to my previous point. The reason that they couldn't say, we have an issue with Daniel because of this, is because the this wasn't valid, and it showed them to be the bigots that they were. It showed them to be, to be the people who were problematic. It showed them to be the people who, who were in the wrong. We see this all the time in our society. Right, right now, the last couple of years, more than ever. We see people who have issues with you. And they have issues with you for, for various sorts of reasons. But they can't be honest about those reasons, because if they're honest about those reasons, it exposes their own heart. So they seek to find grounds for complaint. I don't know how many times over the last few years I've been in conversations with people who've had issues about churches just meeting. And, you say, and they say, well, I, don't, I have a problem with it because of this. And so you address this. Oh, yeah, but there's also that. And so you address that. Oh, well, but there's also this. So you address this, and it's like after three or four of those, you're like, so, so this was never the reason in the first place, was it? And so often in our society today, one of the issues people have with a lack of compliance is simply that it's a lack of compliance. But they can't say that. They have to have a reason. Oh, you need to comply because... If you don't comply, then you're not loving. If you don't comply, you're not doing this. If you don't comply, you're not doing that. Rather than just saying, do you know what? We've all been told we have to comply, and we're complying, and we don't like it when you don't comply. Because that would just expose their own heart. So Daniel and his fr- uh, Daniel's fellow presidents, fellow the satraps, they can't say why they have an issue with Daniel, because it exposes them. So they have to try and find another reason. Now, I don't want to drop this point just yet. If you're married, this is something that can destroy a marriage. You're annoyed with your spouse because they did this or they did that. And you can't say, well, you did this or that. And you make it about something different. Maybe you're the sort of person who makes it about something that hasn't happened. I bet he did this or that. I bet she's thinking that. Or maybe you're the person that likes to drag up things from the past. Oh, yeah, but 75 years ago, you did this. None of this is valid. And I think it's a very healthy thing in all of our relationships if we're honest with ourselves. Whenever you are, whatever your relationship, whether you're dating, whether you're married, whether it's a friend at church, someone you work with, in any relationship, when you find yourself irritated, annoyed, angry, you're responding emotionally to another person, you need to stop 
at that point and say to yourself this ever so crucial question. Why? Why am I angry? Why am I upset? You know, it's, it's so easy to just react emotionally rather than, rather than just think. Because when you think, you then have to say to yourself, well, is this something I should be reacting to? Is this a sin that I need to confront? Or do I need to simply forbear with this? One of my children, I won't say which one, <laughs> one of my children uh, had a habit of whistling around the house. And when I say whistling around the house, I mean like just constantly whistling. And it led to multiple angry outbursts from multiple other siblings regarding the continuous whistling. And like anybody else, there'd be a time when I go, oh, I just don't need that right now. And it would be tempting for me to respond. There was a point a little while back when I'm uh, just trying to assess my, my life in various areas, that I'm just, I'm just challenged and convicted to say, what is he doing wrong? What's wrong with this? Somebody is cheerfully whistling in the house. Why is that problematic? Maybe because I'm not cheerful at this precise moment, and that I'm allowing the whistling to make me less cheerful. And I had to make this really definitive, conscious decision to say, do you know what? That's a good thing. The problem here is me, not that. And do you know what happened? Is over the course of about the next year, I came to quite like it. That something that was previously annoying became quite sweet. The only thing that had to change was me. Now that's a, that's a very superfluous example, nothing deep or heavy. But I pray and hope that the Holy Spirit's maybe been convicting you in your heart as I've been speaking about issues that are less superfluous and a little bit more important. That we would learn to, to forbear with people who maybe irritate us at times, say things the way we wouldn't say them, talk the way we wouldn't talk, mention things we wouldn't mention, do things. But they're not doing anything wrong. We talk a lot at this church about legalism. And one of the very important things about legalism is this, in a very practical sense, is what it means in practice is if someone is in sin, we have a duty to confront it. We can't run away from it, we can't ignore it, we have to confront it. We have to confront sin in the church, we've got to confront sin within our relationships. If your spouse is in sin, you need to confront it. If you have a friend that you love and they're in sin, you need to tell them, because sin kills and it's serious. But if it's not clearly sin... Keep your nose out. That is a very good, broad principle in life generally. Just, it's none of your business. You wouldn't wear that? Then don't wear it. You wouldn't say that? Then don't say it. Just you be you and let them be them. If it's an issue of sin, absolutely we step in. But you know what churches are just terrible at? We love stepping in in areas that are none of our business. And we love opting out in the times when we should be stepping in. We get it all wrong. And so it's a reminder, this text, to us that we should not be seeking to find a ground for complaint because it exposes that we are already in the wrong. The next thing that we see in these verses is this. That though they sought to find a complaint, they couldn't find one. Isn't that just magnificent? That needs to be our lives, folks. That someone tries to say, oh, well, you know, what, what, what kind of problem do you have with this guy? Well, you know, he's really, um, you know, and um, yeah, he does, you know, yeah, yeah, really, you know. You want them to stumble on their words when they try and tear you down. Daniel had been taken as a teenager from his homeland. He'd been castrated He'd been put under force into the University of Babylon where he studied for three years. And in the midst of that situation, he was their best student. Which led him into a position of government in his early 20s at the oldest. He then proceeded to serve the Babylonian government without ever being unfaithful to his God. And he just continued to serve and be faithful and serve and be faithful. And he's now 80 years old and that's all he's ever done. When he's been called upon, he's served and been faithful. 
and nobody has any grounds against him. My friends, the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ are inherently offensive. They're inherently offensive. For us to say to the world, you are sinners, and your sin places you under the judgment of a holy God, and he will condemn you for eternity unless you turn from your sin and you turn to him in repentance, trusting in the shed blood of Christ alone for the remission of your sins. That Christ will set you free from the punishment of your sins and also from the power of your sin in this day. So turn from your sins and turn to Christ. You think that's a popular message today? You think that the gospel is something that people are saying, oh yeah, I love that, that sounds great. Man, that's wonderful stuff. That is an offensive message to the world today. What we preach is offensive. So here's my point. You've got no reason to be offensive about anything else. There's enough offense in the gospel alone. God doesn't need our help. You know what? That gospel message is really offensive. So let me just, let me just be really rude as I present it just to make it that little bit more offensive. God doesn't need our help in that regard. We simply have to be faithful. Daniel was faithful and he was a faithful servant to the Babylonians. He's going to be a faithful servant to the Medo-Persians whenever he was able. But he never compromised his faith. Above all else, he was faithful to Yahweh. And that's, that's the model and that's the, that's the standard that we're trying to seek. We don't want people to be able to say to us, well, you know, that guy, you know, he's a, he's, he cheats or he lies or he's, he's unreliable or, you know, he doesn't turn up at work on time or he, he's lazy or, or we don't want any of that associated with us. We want to be the hardest working. We want to be the, the most reliable. We want to be the most faithful. We want to be the best that we can be and bring glory to God in all that we do. And that's what Daniel did. And so they concluded in verse 5 that the only way that they were going to find a complaint against Daniel was one concerning his faith. If we can pit his faith against his position, then we'll have a problem. Or he'll have a problem. And it is easy, if that occurs, for things to shift. Change the rules, and then suddenly yesterday's heroes become tomorrow's villains. People working in healthcare for decades. Pandemic hits. They're the heroes. Let's applaud the heroes. Yay, the heroes. Won't get a booster shot? A shot? Oh, well, you can, you can go and get a job somewhere else. How quickly things can change. And so they seek to change the rules of the field, so to speak. Verse 6. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. Greeting of the king, a little bit of, um, little bit of uh, flattery there, but probably no different than how any king would be greeted. But what is clear in this statement is they came by agreement. They came by agreement. What does that mean? That means there is a conspiracy afoot. There is a conspiracy afoot, and that's going to become clear. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the councillors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. There is your lie. We all think this way. Well, I know one of the presidents. There's only three presidents, and I know one that doesn't. I know one that isn't even aware of this. So a group has come and said, we represent everybody. And of course they don't. And so they lie before the king to try and get the king to establish an injunction. And this injunction is going to mean that whoever makes petition to any god or any man for the next 30 days, except to the king shall be cast into a den of lions. 
Then verse 8, now a king established the injunction to sign the document so it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, Darius signed the document and the injunction. Right, we probably won't get much further than this today. There's so much here to unpack. First of all, the very, very important historical background, okay? The Medo-Persians had a different system of rule than the Babylonians did. Under the Babylonian system of law, Nebuchadnezzar says, you must do this, then you have to do it. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar has decided. He's in charge, he makes the rules, that's it. So if Nebuchadnezzar says, you must hop on one foot on Monday, then you have to hop on one foot on a Monday. Otherwise he kills you, because he's Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king. If next week he says, you know, it's not really working out on Mondays, I want to move it to Tuesdays, then he would just change the law. You've got to do it on Tuesdays now. The law about doing it on Mondays doesn't matter anymore because he's now said Tuesdays. He's in charge, that's it. He's the highest authority. But the Medo-Persians had a different system of law. Medo-Persians had a system of law that once a law has been put in place, that the law then supersedes the Medo-Persian king. So the Medo-Persian king can make a law. The law is sealed with the signet ring of the king. And now the law that that king has sealed has greater authority than the king himself. You see here, probably as Americans, most of you, um, a little hint of what was to come later with the establishing of the Constitution, that the people who established the Constitution established something that would forever be above them and those who su succeeded them. And that's something that the Medo-Persians had in place. And that's very, very important. And that, by the way, is why this injunction, this decree, is for 30 days. They don't want it to be forever. They, they, if they say, hey, do it like this, then that's how it has to be forever. And so they say for 30 days. And that's the reason for the 30 days. And that's what's being said when it says it cannot be revoked. Second thing that we need to look at here with regards to this is simply what is being asked. Now, those who are in leadership, as we've already seen, if you're a king and you conquer a nation, then your gods have conquered the gods of the nation that you have conquered. They always would see the gods behind the scenes. Maybe not completely accurately, but certainly with a degree of accuracy and far more so than we do in our society typically today. In addition, the king himself would be viewed as being a representative or even a son of the god that they represent. And so it is then that these worlds of faith and government would so often be merged together. The petition is to say that no, sorry, the, the injunction is to say that no petition can be made other than going through the king. Now, let's be clear what this means and equally what it doesn't mean. No Jew is forbidden for worshipping Yahweh. If you're a Jew and you want to worship Yahweh, you just get on and worship Yahweh. That's absolutely fine. But if you want to worship Yahweh in a particular way, just send us a request. Just put it through to Darius. In other words, well, I'm a Jew and I want to worship Yahweh, and I'm going to worship Yahweh by going to Yahweh and, and saying, hey, Yahweh, would you please graciously hear my prayer and do this? And what Darius is essentially doing here with this decree is saying, well, if you want to be able to do that, then just ask me and I'll pass the message on. Now you say, well, that's just crazy. We would, none of us would ever do anything like that. We, we, we certainly wouldn't do that, would we? I mean, we just pray to God. We, we didn't have to, to do anything. No, 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 no. You need to understand this is not saying that you can't do anything behind closed doors. Daniel could have gone to his room, got on his knees, and prayed to Yahweh, and Darius had no intervention, no need to know, no anything. And to be honest, Darius wouldn't have even cared. Nobody would have been knocking on his door and saying, are you in there praying? If you think that's what's going on here, you're misunderstanding the context of the passage. The issue is public worship. 
The issue here is this. You can't just go off and worship your God as you choose. You need to put it through Darius. And Darius, who's newly in charge of this province, is probably thinking, well, this is a great idea because it means that we don't have any outliers just going off and doing their own thing. Everybody is kind of playing as one big team here. Now, if those things do not ring the bells to you about things that have been happening in our society in recent years, you have been firmly in asleep slash in a coma. The government has basically been saying, hey, Muslims, you want to be a Muslim? Christians, you want to be Christians? Jews, you want to... You go do those things, but when you, if you want to meet, you need a permission slip. I'm sorry, you can't have a permission slip. How long for? 15 days to flatten the curve, 30 days month or two, you know, so on and so forth. Oh, okay, you, yeah, you can have a permission slip now, but the permission slip says you can only meet outdoors. Oh, when you have to wear masks, and you have to socially distance, and you can't greet one another with the holy kiss, you've got to stay apart. And you can't sing songs of praise. And Christians have been responding to this by saying, well, we're all in this together, we're all going to do our bit. We've all got to... We've all got to, to do our part. Well, we can still sing in our hearts. Government's not saying we have to stop reading our Bible or praying. Oh, no, no. We wouldn't. Now, if they said that, then obviously we'd have a problem because that would be sinful. But they're not saying that we can't do that. All we've got to do is just play along. We can still get to do church through, through live stream. We still get to do it this way and do that. Every single church that has taken that approach would have had no problem in the time of Daniel at all. Every single believer who believed that that is an acceptable response to the demands of Caesar would not have got within a hundred miles of a lion. I want to read you a quote it's from a book you may have heard of. <laughs> but I said it once, I don't want to have to say it again. I tried to make everything concise in this so I wouldn't have to be so long-winded here. So anyway... Can Caesar make that decree? Sure he can. Why? Because he's Caesar. This is the cry of statism. Statism is the worldview that Caesar is no longer a servant of God. Rather, he's effectively been made into a God. He has to some degree taken over the role of God in our lives. It's no use for us to plead that we do not worship Caesar because we worship Christ. Did not the Israelites in the Old Testament worship Yahweh while at the same time committing idolatry? Caesar rarely, if ever, desires to be a monotheistic god. He's happy to be worshipped alongside others. The issue was not so much they completely disowned Yahweh, but rather that they viewed him to be insufficient and had added other gods in certain realms. They might still observe the Day of Atonement, but that didn't stop them from making an offering to Baal for a better harvest. This is the important part. Caesar has been delegated authority by the only one who can, God. But when he rejects the one who delegates that authority to him, he now creates his own boundaries or lack thereof in lieu of God. He is now the one who delegates authority. He is now the one who determines his purpose and determines his limits. He is now the rule maker. He is now the king, the ruler, the one to be feared, the one to be obeyed, Caesar has declared himself to be God. That's what's going on. Caesar says, I'm Caesar. I make the rules. I decide when you can meet and when you can't meet. I decide what your service looks like. I decide how you Christians get to publicly worship. And how then do we respond to such tyranny? How do we respond to the threat of statism? The majority of people who would define themselves as Bible-believing Christians have responded by taking the knee and bowing before Caesar. That is the tragedy of our time. People have asked me when they've gotten a copy of the book to write in it, and people, whenever I got authors to write in books, they'd always put a Bible verse in and I've decided that every, every time I write in a book, it's going to say, 2 Chronicles 26, verse 18. That's when the priests of Uzziah's day, when Uzziah goes in to make the sacrifices and to try and be a priest as well as a king, that these men risked their lives and chased after him, laid hands on him, and they said these glorious words, Get out of the sanctuary. 
That's our response to Caesar. Get out of the sanctuary. You have no business here. And this is how Daniel responds. Daniel, when it is brought before him, when he knew that the document had been signed, verse 10, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, what is clear is that he prayed before God previously. I don't think it's clear that he'd opened the windows in that way before. Maybe it was, and maybe that's why. But let's be clear about this. The opening of the windows towards Jerusalem is significant. When the temple was established, Solomon's temple, 1 Kings chapter 8, when the temple is established and God shows up in that temple, in that inauguration of the temple, there is a clear understanding that Jerusalem is God's chosen city and this temple is God's chosen place. And the time is going to come when because of the disobedience of the people of Israel that they will lose both the temple and the city. But God will once again restore Jerusalem, and so they should, so to speak, look to Jerusalem for God to re-establish the kingdom, to re-establish the nation. That's what the Jewish people were supposed to do in the time of Babylon, is look to Jerusalem for the re-establishing of both the temple and the kingdom. And following the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, that's what the Jews of the world should be doing, and broadly speaking have been doing, for about 1800 years until Israel was re-established. Every year at Passover, Jews would say, next year in Jerusalem, in the hope that that would be the year that Messiah would return, and they would celebrate the Passover with him in Jerusalem. And so for Daniel to kneel towards Jerusalem is not some superstitious thing. It is, a, it is a political statement. It is a political statement. A religious statement, absolutely, but also a political one. It's saying, my allegiance is to that kingdom. And my God will one day raise up that kingdom again. And that is where my eyes are because that is where my heart is. And so he opens the windows facing Jerusalem. It's an upper room in these societies where <coughs> they had hot climates. The upper rooms would often have lots of windows that the air blow through, keep it cool. And he, this one of three men given authority, the one who is most highly regarded among them, he in complete flagrant dismissal of this mandate... He opens his windows and says, not me. I am not bowing the knee before you. I will not comply. But Daniel, don't you know that they're going to throw you in the lion's den? Hey, pastor, don't you know about the fines? Hey, pastor, don't you love your congregation? Don't you, are you worried about them getting sick? Hey, what about this threat? What about that threat? I will not comply. Daniel says, I will not comply. He had the windows open, and not once, not twice, but three times a day, he publicly took the knee. Not before Darius, the Caesar of his day. I'm aware of the irony of using a term that came about later, but you, know, you take my point. Not before the kingdom of the Medo-Persians, not before this mandate, he bowed his knee towards Jerusalem before the God whom he worshipped. The saddest thing in churches in the midst of the COVID era has been not the beginning of, not the creation of, but the exposing of deep seated statism within the church and statism my friends is merely a form of idolatry it is a way of saying well you know what I'll do what God says but I, 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 but I better do what Caesar says as well get out of the sanctuary we will worship as God directs us to worship we will gather as God directs us to gather 
And we will do as we do in this place under the authority of Scripture and through the delegated authority of pastors and elders and deacons. That's how we operate. That's how we function. And it's sad to see the degree to which the church has bowed the knee. One of the things I haven't understood is this astonishing intellectual disconnect that Christians, I I know personally of Christians who would read this precise chapter of scripture with their children during the pandemic while not going to church and trying to meet somewhere outside rather than inside to be in compliance with Caesar. It is, it is a most monumental um, uh, illustration of completely and utterly missing the point. And Daniel would not bow the knee. Now, we will continue on next time. I want to, to finish up a little bit earlier today. We have communion ahead of us still. I simply want us to end on this on this point of understanding. COVID is a warm-up. I don't say that because I'm, a, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I'm, I'm just somebody who reads the Bible and knows that this is, this is a blip. If anyone tells you that COVID was prophesied by scripture and this is the end times and blah, 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 you know, just whatever, nonsense. You know, this isn't, this isn't even mentioned in Scripture. It's a blip in history. It's just a little test. Right now, we're trying to find out where our allegiance lies. Because there's much bigger tests coming. Most of us have lived in inexplicable comfort our entire lives. It's not to say you had an easy life. It's not to say without trials. It's not to say that you don't have grief and trauma that you've had to walk through. I'm not suggesting that. I'm simply saying that none of us have ever had to deny Christ to keep our lives. But we might have that in our lifetime. The most fascinating thing that I saw during COVID was actual pastors being put in prison for holding church in the Western world. And... And I, and I hate to be the man that said, told you so, but I've been saying this for decades. I had a friend who used to go to our church in England, literally about 20 years ago, he first started coming to our church. And he, he sent me a message last year and said, you were right. He said this would happen. Guys, it's going to get worse. This is but a blip. They've tested the water. They found it to be warm. They're going to go for a swim. We need to know what we believe. We need to be able to stand firm. And we need to understand, as I've been saying to you again and again and again, that we are not Christians seeking a comfortable life where we get to be Christians, live the American dream, go to church on Sunday, do our little bit, put a little bit in the offering. We're part of church. Here we are. We're Christians. Let's sing together. Let's go to church together. And we just get on with our lives and we want everything else to go well. That is a myth. We have conflated the gospel with the American dream and got this bizarre hybrid chimera that has no representation of either. If you would come after me, you must deny yourself. Does that sound like the American dream to you? You can be whatever you want, do whatever you want to accomplish, achieve whatever you want, have whatever you want, achieve great things. You must deny yourself. Take up your cross. Great symbol of suffering. And follow me. We are Christ followers. Christ who was rejected by the people he came to save. Christ who was spat upon and mocked. Christ who they plotted to kill. Christ who they lied about and slandered. Christ who had the crown of thorns. Christ who was whipped and then scourged. Christ who was crucified. That's the man we're following. And if it's a hundred step process... To go from Peter, I'll follow you wherever you go, to denying him three times, to finally, at the end of his life, 
being crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die like his saviour. If that is a hundred step journey, then the evangelical church got to step one or two the last few years and said, I'm done. Let's just meet outside. Let's just do what we're told. Let's not ruffle feathers. Let's not cause a problem. Let's just comply. No chance of being faithful to the end. None at all. Now, I know in one sense I'm preaching to the choir. You guys know I wrote that book and you're still here. You've heard me preach on it multiple times. You're still here. And hopefully when Daniel 6 is done, we're done with it. And we can just get on to other greener pastures and talk about other things. But I want you to have this settled in your heads. Have we decided through a year of studying the book of James, have we decided through all of this time of this so-called pandemic, have we decided through all the midst of all of this, have we decided that we will bow the knee to Christ and no one else? Have we decided? Have we decided that we will bow the knee even when lowering our head to bow, they chop our heads off? Have we decided? In a moment, we're going to come to the table the Lord's table, to take communion together. It's a place where we remember how he gave his life as a sacrifice for us. We remember that, and now it's time for us to give our lives as a sacrifice to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. Forgive us where we've conflated the gospel message with the American dream. We make our plans, but you direct our steps. We seek our own ways and you laugh. We resist your commands and you rise up in anger. You are God and you are sovereign. You demand our all. Lord, may we willingly bow the knee. As we come before the table today, forgive us for our compromise. As we come before the table today, forgive us where we've sinned. Lord, as we take just a moment in silence now, Father, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, place upon our hearts areas that we need to confess and put right. You who have set us free from the power of sin, forgive us, we pray, for where we have dismissed that power and chosen to walk in it for our own selfish pleasure and our own selfish gain. May we come to the table repentant sinners grateful for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Amen.